One of the things that makes strategy hard is that people want to keep lots of things possible. And so they generate lists of priorities. But having this list of priorities is a way of finessing the fact that we don't really want to make a choice about what we're going to do. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard business professor Richard Rummel describe one pitfall on the road to developing effective strategies, and there are many others, starting with misconceptions about what strategy actually means. I'm so excited to have Richard on our podcast today. He's a giant in the field of strategy. In fact, he's been called strategies strategist. Richard is the Harry and Elsa Kunin Chair Emeritus at the UCLA Anderson School of Management and a founding member and former president of the Strategic Management Society. He's also the author of Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, The Difference in Why It Matters. And on today's podcast, he'll explain how to protect against what he calls the contagion of bad strategy. His reflections are based on his latest book, The Crux, How Leaders Become Strategists. We'll put a link you can follow to learn more about the book in our show notes. In today's podcast, you'll hear Richard in conversation with Yuval Atzman. Yuval will be familiar to our regular listeners. He's a senior partner in our London office and a leader in our practice. Yuval, why don't you kick us off? Thank you, Sean, and um, welcome, Richard. It's great to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you today. I wanted to start, Richard, maybe directly with talking about some of the challenges that you see and you've been seeing for a long time, frankly, in terms of the differences between, you know, good strategy and bad strategy. And, and why is it that bad strategy is at least as common, if not even more common sometimes than, than good strategy, or at least as I see as well, we have many cases where companies think they have a strategy and they don't fully have a strategy or their management team actually is not aligned on one strategy Thanks for the question, Yuval. It's a good question. It's, it's not exactly super easy to answer, but certainly the trends over the past 30 to 40 years have been in the direction of bad strategy. Uh, I think that it's sort of a social contagion where people are copying what they see other people do. For many companies, strategy has become... Uh, not quite a marketing tool, but a way of presenting to the board and to the investing public their ambitions. And that's what they do. And then they confuse that with actually having a strategy. And some of it is uh, the victory of finance, in some sense, as the language of business, where we talk about shareholder return as the ultimate measure of performance and success. And so then people target that and uh, they say, okay, our strategy is to achieve these results. And that's not strategy. Strategy is problem solving. Strategy is how you're overcoming the, the obstacles and barriers that stand between where you are and achieving something. It may not be a particular number. So there is this confusion. Typically, when I started writing this book, that's now called The Crux, it really my provisional title was Breaking the Bad Strategy Habit. Uh, now, there are, of course, companies and individuals that do strategy extremely well, you know, brilliant, uh, 
insights into what's happening in the world and how to adapt to it or how to take advantage of it. But at the same time, uh, I get called into companies to participate in strategy sessions or to speak to them and then listen to a strategy session. And boy, a lot of it is, is awfully banal. So a typical strategy session, the CEO will announce certain kinds of performance goals. Well, we want to grow this fast. We want to have this rate of profitability. And, you know, maybe they'll throw out some other things about safety and the environment and quasi-social political goals. And that's our strategy. And you have to be sensitive to what a strategy really is to sort of remark that and say, well, wait a minute, that's not a strategy. That's a set of ambitions is the right term. And first of all, I nowadays ask them, what are your ambitions? Let's get it all out. What are all these ambitions you have? And let's understand what your ambitions are. And in fact, if you've got six or seven senior leaders in a room, and you get them to talk about their personal ambitions for the company and themselves, it's, it's a big spread. It's not just uh, shareholder return. There's a bunch of things there. It's about you know, fame and success and respect and responsibility and on and on and on. And that's all fine. We all have ambitions. In the crux, I write about my own ambitions. I, I say when I was 25... Uh, I wanted to climb the big mountains of the world. I wanted to be a professor of business. I wanted to be a, an inspiring teacher. I wanted to marry a beautiful woman and have successful children. I wanted to drive a Morgan Drophead Plus Four. And uh, that's not a strategy. That's desire. And so the question is, well, can you accomplish all of those at once? Of course not. Can you accomplish any of them? Well, that's the beginning of strategy, is which of these ambitions can we actually make progress on today or in the near future? And then you begin to formulate a, uh, an action plan to do something and that strategy. So this, this gap between having an actual action and having ambitions is where most bad strategy comes from. It's almost a literary form that has evolved uh, using PowerPoint slides to basically say, here's, all the th here's how we will look as a company in a year or in three years. And that's, that's interesting, but it's not a strategy. A strategy is how, I will, how we will solve the problems that stand between us and that kind of accomplishment. I think one of the things that I also find, by the way, and this is true both in business and in personal life, is the difficulty of making choices uh, and sort of committing to your choices. We, um, we define strategy as you know, making choices ahead of time in the face of uncertainty. Of course, if you can keep changing the decisions, it's probably not a strategic decision uh, per se. And it's very difficult for many executives you know, if they can try to keep more options open, they try to delay those choices. And those are just one of the reasons why I think strategy is getting harder um, in some companies to execute. Yes, it's, it's hard to make choices. 
uh, let's call them commitments for the time being. Uh, when, you, when you commit to a course of action, the left road in the woods instead of the right road, you're, you're leaving behind, you're killing off things that might have been. And that's, that's painful. We like to keep all the stuff in the air. And you can keep your ambitions in the air, but you can't keep all your choices in the air. 1993, I was climbing a mountain in France called the Dome de Miage. It's a beautiful uh, snow ridge, very narrow, with 2,000 feet down one side, 3,000 feet down the other side. I was up there with Henry Mintzberg, who was also a climber. And we had on our crampons and our ropes and our ice axes, and we're trudging along this ridge, going up, up, up into the blue sky. And if uh, one of us falls to one side, the other's supposed to jump to the other side to balance it. And uh, I caught my crampon point in my pant leg, and I, I stood there kind of like, Ooh, and then I pulled that foot up and put it down. And then I had this epiphany, this sense of, uh, you know, come on, I'm, I'm old. I'm in my late 50s. What am I doing up here? Uh, my wife is uh, somewhere in Massachusetts. My daughter is graduating college, looking for a job. I've got doctoral students that need advising. I've got a book I want to write. And I began to suddenly realize that this is not a good choice for me. <laughs> that yes, I used to climb every summer when I was 30, but what am I doing up here now? And so I didn't do any more technical climbing like that. I I became more of a hiker. And it's a painful choice. When I see pictures of that mountain, I still feel a pang. That... But you make a choice. You, you decide you're going to commit your energy to, to A rather than B. And it is, not, it is not comfortable. One of the things that makes strategy hard is exactly what you just suggested, you know, is that people want to keep lots of things possible. And so they generate lists of priorities. I had a client that had 12 priorities in their list, which violates the concept of the word priority. I mean, if you pay attention to English language, the word priority means first. And you don't want to hear, uh, you don't want to be in an airplane when you hear the air traffic controller say, I'm giving priority on runway three to the following list of airplanes. Doesn't, you don't have priority to many. But Having this list of priorities is a way of finessing the fact that we don't really want to make a choice about what we're going to do. Or it's also the sensibility that when we do strategy, we have to include everyone. You know, if there's anybody in the company that doesn't get mentioned in the strategy, they're going to feel bad. And so we have to, we have to mention all the different roles and all the different activities. I call that the public face of strategy, and that's fine. It doesn't bother me. But it's not the actual strategy. The actual strategy has to be a focus. Ever since strategy became a concept, you know, there's sort of two origins of the word. One is back to the Greeks, and the other is the analysis of Napoleon's activities. But whenever, for whenever it's become a concept, it, it has to do with, with, a, with the idea of a focus of strength against weakness. And in business, it's a focus of strength against opportunities or problems. And that focus is, is essential. If you're not focusing resources on a weak point, and the weak point can be a, you know, a great opportunity, 
you're not really acting strategically. If you're rich and powerful, you can get away with not acting strategically for a while until your wealth and power finally diminish. So Richard, what do you think about developing long-term strategies? Is the notion of long-term strategy even as relevant now in a world that is increasingly dynamic and rapidly changing? I tend not to emphasize long-term strategy. If it's appropriate in a given situation, I'll call it a grand strategy. Sometimes we'll talk about mission. I'm not sure that you can have a long-term strategy in today's world. I tend to see strategy as a journey. Again, going back to the mountain climb, that that you start out and you look at your mountain and you say, I'm going to go up this ridge. I think that's the way to go. And you go up the ridge and you find it blocked. You say, okay, I'm going to traverse on this ledge. And I look up and you say, well, okay, now I'm going to go up this crack. I think it'll go to another ledge and so on. You you find your way. Now, the long term there is I want to get to the top. But now we're turning a strategy into ambition again. We're saying getting to the top is the strategy. Well, it's not really the strategy. The strategy is how you get to the top. And you get to the top as a company, as an individual, or as a nation by solving problems. Right now, uh, the world has become aware of the fact that energy independence might be a good thing. That depending on declared enemies for your energy might not be a good idea. So suddenly we see a problem where three years ago, it was a problem three years ago, but nobody was, was paying attention to it. And so on. So you have these problems that arise, and then hopefully if, if, if the strategic apparatus is operating, it's working, you, you, you work to solve that problem. And, and so, so companies typically evolve through a series of these challenges and responses. It's back to Toynbee's theory of of civilization, that civilizations evolve uh, from challenge and response and challenge and response. And so there's very few companies that have a really long-term strategy that's about solving problems. It's usually more of what we might call a business model or, you know, here's the business we're in. You know, if you're in the petroleum business, is being in, you know, doing those various things you do, is that a strategy? The trouble is you can't just rest on that. You can't say, oh, well, our strategy is is being tightly knit with the politics of various countries, because that doesn't last. Again, uh, that has to be revisited, and then there's also things that happen in the meantime. There are oil spills and... And, and, and wars, and you're constantly dealing with problems. I, I would add to that, that, in fact, the fact that we are living in more volatility makes strategy more of a problem-solving practice than less of a problem-solving practice, because, you know, you just need to make decisions in a quicker pace and, you know, more often than maybe you needed to in the past. What matters is not so much understanding the trends, but it's spotting discontinuity of trends, because it's change of trends that are actually presenting opportunities and challenges. That does require both, you know, the ability to sort of understand that's happening, to relate it to what the business impact is going to be, and actually galvanizing action in a company to address the challenge that it presents. 
So, so those are all, you know, both individual and collective problem solving that sort of makes all the difference in terms of strategic actions for many companies today. Yeah, what, what people find difficult, what all of us find difficult is, is when the game changes. So for 30 years, the basic trends we've had are increasing globalization, increasing specialization, pieces of value change, dividing into smaller pieces, where you can go to one place to evaluate products and another place to buy the product, a third place to ship the product and a fourth place. And we call that a supply chain to some extent. We don't even know where we're getting stuff sometimes. And so there's this, this chopping and breaking into pieces. And all of this is economics. And it's expected in an in a open system. But is that game changing? Are we entering an era when we push the limits of that? And we're going to have to rethink how we're sourcing things and, and how we're distributing things and so on. Uh, the world has is, is got lots of trends right now that are suggesting that we're, we're at some kind of inflection point where things are going to be different in the future. Maybe that's a good transition, Richard, to the, you know, the term, the, the crooks, and the way you're using it in the context of strategy, which, at least in my mind, as I was uh, reading it, what I found compelling about it is really that rather than suggesting that in a more complex world, the work of resolving strategy is a lot more difficult, you're actually trying to go back to the essence of simplicity, uh, of what matters most, or sort of what is the sort of point of leverage that you can create more of a difference. So maybe tell us a bit more about the concept and how you're using that uh, to guide companies on strategy. Right. So many of my ideas are, in some sense, remedial. I am trying to write about and teach and consult with companies in a way to help them do it better. My own framework said, okay, you've got to diagnose. You've got to, you've got to figure out what's going on here. And working with companies and diagnosing why strategy was, was so banal, one of the things is that they're trying to do too many different things at once. And they're, they're not focusing on what is actually critical. And so one of the principles that I that I expound is the idea of, look, if we're going to expend energy and, and talent on solving a problem, it better be A, at a very important problem, and B, a problem that you can actually solve. The problems out there we can't solve. Well, let's defer those till next year. And let's work on what we can actually deal with. Now, I'd I haven't yet to find a company that will obey my uh, advice and focus on one problem. They always want two or three. But the idea of the crux is that, first of all, the crux of a climb is the hardest move or the hardest segment. And you practice to get over that crux in order to accomplish that climb. And the advice that comes out of that, the real simple advice is, look, don't attempt a climb if you can't handle the crux. And in business terms or national security terms or nonprofit terms, it's, it's don't 
tackle a problem if you can't handle the hard nut at the center of it. If you can't handle that, go and solve a different problem. There are problems out there the United States doesn't know how to solve. I mean, maybe somebody does, but as a, as a organized national system, it's it seems incapable of solving certain kinds of problems. And so maybe you should be working on things you can fix. And so the crux idea is that every problem has a, a hard nut. And you better be able to solve that hard nut before you start saying that's our challenge that we're going to accept. The really successful strategists I've known have this sense for that. They have a sense for what's the crux of a problem? What's the hard nut at the center? Can I get through it? Can I solve it? And which of these really important problems uh, is worth putting their resources on? So Richard, what about resilience? Given all the disruption that many organizations are facing currently, how should one think about integrating resilience into one's strategies and strategic planning process? Traditional strategy, the kind I was educated in, was about product market performance. We studied products, we studied markets, we studied customers, and we tried to find out where we had an advantage, and we tried to commit resources where we had or would have an advantage. That was the deal. What that leaves out is organizational functioning. And some people will say, I mean, there's a tradition in, 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 in the management literature of saying, look, oh, strategy is important, but it's really execution. Well, that's silly. That's like saying we have a military strategy, but our soldiers, they're not, they're too fat to walk. Execution is part of strategy, of course. So strategy is about what's important and what are the challenges you face. And if one of the challenges you face is that the organization's not functioning correctly, if it's just, if it has dysfunction, then that's strategic. It has to be. You can't say, oh, the strategy's about just our products. No, no. If, if your managers are not managing properly, if, if the organization lacks the, the, the resilience it needs for the kind of business it's in, then that's a strategic issue and you have to fix it. Now, the oral organizations have to be resilient? No, of course not. You know, I mean, if you're making candy bars under a brand name that's been here for 100 years, I'm not sure how resilient you have to be. If you, have, if you have officers uh, uh, tracking resilience in that company, maybe you should get rid of them because it's a waste. You're in a very stable market niche with a very stable business. There are companies today that are in uh, businesses where things are changing almost every week. And of course, they need to be resilient and they need to be adaptive and they need to be uh, quick on their pins. The hard thing is when you're used to a particular pattern of operations and then the company has a new opportunity that it can't resist and that opportunity is in a different paced world and you need more resilience and you need to deal with attacks and responses and, and changes. And, and now at the, at the same time you have a different uh, operating pattern that comes from the past. That's a very tough situation to deal with. I think, Sean, also the... I mean, the dynamic right now, obviously, I, I think when people talk about resilience, they're anticipating different scenarios of slowdown. I mean, some are light and some are more severe. And 
you want to make sure that, you know, obviously you are able to benefit from different scenarios. So you don't want to over respond to negative and be surprised uh, with less wars or vice versa be caught. I think if you look back, you know, two years ago, when we just had COVID start, people, uh, you know, for <laughs> very good reasons expected the worst. Uh, and of course, in many respects, it was terrible and tragic medically, but at least economically, the recovery was faster um, for most companies relative and was a, you know, an opportunity to accelerate digital and do other things much faster than people expected. And yet, you know, one year later with inflation, and of course, all of that in between was affected by the stimulus and other things that governments have done. Now there's a bit of a hangover. I, I think it's been, you know, it's very hard to make predictions right now in terms of, so I think the humility about what we don't know uh, and planning for different scenarios is probably critical. And again, it is a strategic uh, action. Uh, the other thing I would say is the opportunity for some companies to actually consolidate uh, their advantages or sort of to Richard's point to apply strength against weakness, you actually can apply more strength in periods of change and, and periods of volatilities in the market than you can in you know periods where everyone is benefiting and growing. So for some companies, they might need to resilience to survive. For others, this is actually an opportunity to make bolder strategic bets to, to thrive in the time after uh, things go back to, to normal. Yuval, I liked your, your expression, strategic bets, because businesses got some risk. It has to be risky. That's, that's part of the notion of a business system, is the business people are out there making bets uh, to some extent. Uh, we hopefully don't bet the whole company uh, all the time. Sometimes you do. But there's an Arab saying, he who tells the future lies, even if he tells the truth. You, know, you, you have to agree with that, that, that nobody knows what's going to happen. If you look at forecasts about the future, and one way to look at a forecast is to say, what are going to be the five top agenda items for people? in 2027. You know, is sustainability going to be on there? Is equity and inclusion going to be on there? Is deglobalization going to be on there? And yeah, probably. Now go ahead another five years, 2032. The history is that no, you can't guess the top five. They're different. It's not the same top five. And, and that's sort of the way our civilization has been bumbling along is, is we, we don't know what the world's going to be like in 10 years, that it's not stable. We're not living in 1422, where at 1432, it's going to be pretty much like 1422. So what do you do? How do you deal with that? Well, you make your bets about what's going on in the world. You know, there are long-term things you can bet on. I mean, the age distribution of the population is, is pretty much fixed. For a lot of the world, there's a, a coming imbalance, that there's going to be too many old people and not enough young people. Well, you can predict that because it's, it's, it's already there. If it rains in the Himalaya, there's going to be a flood in the Ganges. And if, if, if we don't get birth rates, if, if in Germany they're way below replacement birth rates and they've already destroyed a half a million housing units because there's nobody to live in them, you know that there's going to be a, a shortage of young workers. And so 
these kind of things we can forecast, but the, the social and technical stuff, oh, that's much harder. We, nobody forecast Instagram. Nobody forecast uh, social media as an addictive uh, kind of thing out there. And yet, that's, that's what happened. You know, strategy is not about forecasting. It's about dealing with problems that you can actually recognize. Continuing on your point around diagnostic, um, Richard, you, you talk about how do you actually uh, give advice and work with companies to decide what is the crux for them? And one of the, the things that I, I know you talk about in the book and, and we're seeing as well, we're living in a world where people prefer to hear good news and talk about good things. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved, you know, the sort of the power of a simple question that you refer to, such as, you know, what, what about all of that is difficult? <laughs> and how do you get people to actually uh, admit and address uh, challenges in their business and sort of overcome uh, this pretty common, and you talked about cultural and sort of contagion, but the sort of phenomena of, of success theater. Uh, and of course, there's many, many ways to describe um, the same phenomena. And if you want, you can sort of find the angles that support why it's great. But of course, a strategist, um, if we want to find the ad addressable challenges, we should be actually trying to get pretty quickly to the core of what's challenging about it. The first step that people have trouble with is accepting the idea of challenge-based strategy, that strategy is about challenges. I worked with a group in the government that was across 12 different agencies, and they were trying to develop a strategy for integrating these concerns across 12 agencies. But they came out with a strategy that had 22 different priorities. Let's call them priorities, but they were really ambitions. These are things we're going to do. We're going to get this together. We're going to do it. And I kept saying, well, but you've got to deal with why that's hard. You know, if it was easy, it would have already been done. So what's the strategy? And they, they couldn't go there. They couldn't go there. Because if you don't say we have a problem, because then maybe Congress won't give you any money. And so you, you, you have this... Not success theater, but ambition theater and, and, and positive theater. And we can do it. Lots of business people believe that it's bad to talk about problems. Peter Drucker said so. No, I don't want to hear about problems. I want to hear about opportunities. Don't come to me with a problem. Come to me with a solution. This is sort of the macho tradition in business. And... There's a certain truth in that. I love that. You know, don't come to me with a problem. Come to me with a solution. But if we're dealing with strategic stuff, we have to deal with the fact that it's difficult. How do we deal with the fact that, that our technology is not really up to par? That it was great technology for the last 10 years, but now it, it's not the fastest horse out there. And there's a faster horse... And how do we make that transition? And to do that without saying why it's difficult organizationally and, and intellectually and in terms of skills, pretty hard to do. When I work with companies, I do this thing called a foundry, a strategy foundry, which is, it's a workshop. And 
the rules of the foundry are first, the leadership has to be there. They needs to be the, the head of the business and no more than seven or eight people. And they have to agree that it's going to be a challenge-based thing. That's number one. If, if, they, if they want to just set goals, then this is, it's not going to work. And they have to set aside the time for it. And then there's a period of time when I work with them on, on getting honesty, getting, getting people to be clear about what they think. And at first, they don't. At first, uh, you know, they want to talk about their, their favorite subjects. People come together in a group, and as uh, Donald Rumsfeld says in, uh, in my chapter about his question, you know, people come with agendas. They come with hidden preferences. They come with the things that they want done, uh, either personally or organizationally. And all of that is, 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 is a big mess of, you know, they're not all on the same page. So how do you get that group of people, all of whom are smart, to, to do something together called a strategy. I've found that there first has to be an unfreezing period. There has to be a period where they talk about what they think, and that's fine. And then the second time they say what they think, it's fine. And then by the third time, everybody's getting bored with hearing everybody else say what they think, and they begin to... And I, be, and I go through, a, you know, why are we proud of this company? What's it done well? But then we get into, well, what's wrong and what hasn't gone well? And we get into what are the challenges you face? What are the big opportunities you face? And then that becomes contentious because the key question, as, as you echoed back to me about, is, well, why is that difficult? I mean, let's just do this stuff. What... What's the problem here? And then you begin to get at this stuff that people don't want to talk about, which is, well, we want to set up a base in Australia, but we don't know any Australians. Oh, okay, well, why don't you know any Australians? Oh. And so you, you begin to get at what, what are the obstacles that stand between. Or we, we've been failing at this for 10 years, but it's important for us to do this. And then you have to say the unmentionable. Well, if you've been failing at it for 10 years and you don't know why, maybe we should be doing something else. Acting as a facilitator, it was a big change in career for me. I used to try to be a little McKinsey and just go in there and, and solve their problems. You know? But over time, I realized, well, you know, I'm not McKinsey. I'm, I, I don't have all that expertise. Uh, across different industries and different markets. And, and a lot of these times I noticed that the executives involved, they actually know a lot about the business. They know a lot about customers. They know a lot about markets. They may not have all the PowerPoints lined up, but they, they have a good sense of the business they're in. That their, their inability to take the next step is somehow related to their ability to work with each other and work within the organization and related to what we started out talking about, you all know, about their, their concepts of what strategy is. Richard, what about the front lines or the grassroots in organizations? What are some of the ways that you advise organizations to incorporate um, their perspectives into strategic plans and how do you think about engaging them when it comes to execution? 
I'm not a big proponent of strategy as some giant democratic action where everybody contributes. If you have a dysfunctional organization, then the wisdom at the front lines, the wisdom of the people working at the different levels is not being digested. It's not coming up. It's not there. It's not available. And the, and, the, and the leadership then is unaware of what's actually going on. So now you have an organizational problem that's, that's severe. And that, that's a cultural thing. It has to be attacked. It has to be solved. I guess one of the famous thought experiments that people sort of ask about, Sean, is if a you know, tree falls in the forest and no one is there to see it, you know, does it make a sound? And I, I think, you know, likewise, if someone comes up with a strategy and the organization doesn't understand it, do they actually have a strategy? So I'm with Richard that the, the work of formulating a strategy doesn't need to and, and all, you know, rarely can be effectively done in a large group. But there's a lot of work to actually uh, make the strategy actionable. And frankly, it starts from the confidence to stick with certain choices. There's a type one and type two era. And the type one era is where you don't involve the front lines, the, the mass of people in the organization. You don't get their wisdom in. And there's a type two era where they don't understand what the strategy is. The nature here of strategy, if it is a focused choice, if it is a, a, a focus of energy on a, on a critical thing, then it can't be what everybody wants. It can't be a democratic thing where you say, well, everybody gets a little piece of what they do. You see this when you go into nonprofits or small towns. They say, our strategy is we're going to paint the benches, we're going to put in a bike lane, we're going to do this, we're going to build this, we're going to... And they have 25 different things they're going to do, which is fine, it's, but it's not a strategy. It's just stuff you're going to do. So strategy needs to be a focus. It needs to be communicated to everybody. The hang-up is when you're not understanding what's happening in your own business. When you're so disconnected from what people are doing, what their customers are saying, what you're saying, that you lose track of it. And, you, and you're sitting there looking at SAP numbers rather than understanding the nature of the problem, the nature of the business. We don't have a good understanding of what's actually happening in the product market competition, partly because of the success theater that the, each business manager, each division manager wants to talk about their successes and their opportunities and how great everything is. So all of that stuff is so, so these organizational cultural patterns are strategic. Uh, if you can fix some of those, then you're, you're in a much better competitive position. And Richard, what are your perspectives on the best ways to engage one's board on strategy? Are there any pitfalls you'd uh, recommend avoiding there? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that uh, we typically don't have strategy committees on the board. Pretty much everybody will say, well, strategy, that's the CEO's job. It's not so much that you need a strategy committee on the board is you need a sense of best practice. Just as we have pretty well established on boards, the sense of best practice in accounting. Here's the way accounting should be done. Here's the way 
results should be reported and analyzed. Just as the uh, President of the United States has a Council of Economic Advisors, the President doesn't have a Council of Strategy Advisors. Uh, and so we're lacking uh, this sense of best practice in strategy. Maybe because there's too many voices saying too many different conflicting things about what good strategy is. But yeah, there is a problem at that at the board level. Now, the, the big dysfunction that happens in board, and this happens almost by accident, is when we say, oh, let's bring in outsiders and let's bring in people from different backgrounds and let's bring in voices that represent different social, political, economic interests. That's great. Except now you have a room full of people who don't understand the business. The, the language that that room full of people have in common is financial accounting. And so that's what they concentrate on because it's the only thing they all understand. That's a trap you get into by making the board too distant from the actual technicalities of the business. And it, as long as things are going great, it's fine. Nobody cares. But when you begin to get into trouble, then the problem solving isn't there at the board level. All they can do is replace the CEO. And maybe that's all they should be doing. But so the role of the board vis-a-vis -vis strategy is, is, is one we have not yet sorted out as a civilization. Uh, we, we use the board as a way of tracking the results and replacing leadership when necessary. And maybe that's enough. Maybe I'm slightly more optimistic than you, but only slightly, just to be clear. But, but, but at least uh, when I do sessions with boards or board members in training, etc., I usually start with the Lewis Carroll quote that says that, you know, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And I, I think it's the minimum requirement of a board that they are actually aware of what the strategy is and they're able to work with the management to see that there is some consistency and some transparency and, you know, around the strategy work. Yeah, I mean, I think that for most companies, the strategy is not mysterious if there is one. You know, if it's more than just, we're going to accomplish these numbers. And the board can, can, can keep track of that and write her on it and, and, and ask about the logic of it. Um, there has been a tendency in, 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 in the recent decade or so to start giving board members, you know, stock option-like payments, which is a huge mistake. Uh, the board is not, shouldn't be incented to make certain numbers. Uh, they should be incented to, to supervise the, the corporation. Thank you so much, Yuval, Richard. This has been a fantastic conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time with us on our podcast today. Thank you, Sean. It's been wonderful, and I've learned a lot as well. And thank you all for joining us today. If you enjoyed the discussion, you can learn more about Richard's ideas in his book, The Crux, How Leaders Become Strategists. And we've included a link to learn more about the book in our show notes. As always, you can listen to and view transcripts of more than 120 prior discussions on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page, which is located at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at inside the strategy room 
at McKinsey.com. We also encourage you to rate our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page, again on McKinsey.com slash ITSR. You could follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.